Now, you realize that when you leave here, at, it'll be 11.30, but it'll really be 12.30. You know that, right? Okay, so we're, we're not observing this after today. So, uh, you know, we're not rebels. We're not little Arizona. <clears throat> so, anyway. Talk to, uh, well, our uh, 20-year celebration is coming up May 8th, uh, Sunday, May 8th, and I spoke with Daryl Mansfield to this week, and I talked to Dennis Agajanian's secretary. They're both going to be here, uh, and I really appreciate their commitment, you know, to be here. Uh, Dennis is leaving early Monday to go to Paraguay for some ministry down there, but he wants to come and, and be with us on Sunday, and uh, Daryl Mansfield's going to have, he's going to fly back from Canada on Sunday in the morning so that he can get down here uh, to be with us in the evening. And so appreciate those guys. I was talking to Daryl. Uh, they consider themselves musicianaries now, which I thought they're, he's so funny. I try and suggest fun things to him, and he just, no, that's nothing. Yeah, I would never use that in concert, but I've got these other cool things that I can say. So anyway, but it's, it's a lot of fun. We'll have fun. So be planning on Sunday, May 8th. We'll be here in the morning normal morning services at the real time, and uh, Dennis Agajani will be our guest, and then we'll back here in the evening at around 6 o'clock for a couple of hours to, uh, to just celebrate what God has done. This morning we're in Luke, we're in chapter 13, and I'd like you to open your Bibles there so that we can read verses 1 through 9, and then we'll talk about them. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. There were present at that season some who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. Let's pray. Lord, as always, we are most interested in your word. We've read your word. Lord, we're going to read it again as we go through. And I pray that each time, with each word, with each syllable, it would be attended by your Holy Spirit, bringing it alive into our hearts, releasing its power so that there can be a sense of your wonder, of your glory, of your grace, of your mercy, of your love at work in our lives. I know, Lord, that you uh, want to do a work in our midst as individuals and as a church. And we just want to be open to that work. And I pray that after we're done, we would have a greater sense of Jesus Christ, of His being alive, of His being with us, of His leading and guiding us 
every day of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. The tsunami that struck Asia had barely been reported when Christians began speculating that it was sent as a judgment from God. Going back a few years, almost immediately after the planes crashed on 9-11, there was talk and teaching by respected Christian leaders that God was judging America. Going back about two decades, as soon as AIDS and HIV were reported, we were certain it was God's judgment against homosexuals. Whether disasters are natural or national or personal, there is a tendency to see them as deserved by sinners who are being judged by God. The question we might want to ask ourselves is this, how does Jesus want us to understand disasters? The answer is in the verses we are looking at today. The Lord was asked about a particular disaster, and then he mentioned another one. Both of them prompted him to give this advice. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Disasters are not about them. They are not about some group of awful sinners. They're about you. They remind you that you could be gone in a moment, with or without any warning. They say to you, if you had been there, if it had been you, would you have been ready to die? At any given moment, there are many disasters happening on our planet. News cameras take us beyond the yellow tape and through the barriers so that we can experience disaster scenes up close. Jesus is still giving this same advice whenever we see that. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, at every disaster scene, Jesus is calling for you to repent. And number two, behind every disaster scene, Jesus is cultivating you to repent. First of all, in verses 1 through 5, at every disaster scene, Jesus is calling for you to repent. God does judge. There are numerous accounts in the Bible of God's judgment coming upon sinners. There was a global flood in the days of Noah. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by God. Jesus himself predicted the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman legions as a judgment against the Jews for their having rejected him. You can also look to the future and see God's judgment coming. In the last book of the Bible, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, we are told in brutal detail about the judgments that will fall upon the earth in the last days. The problem we have presently is that we don't always know whether a disaster is supernatural or natural. We don't know if it's God directly judging or if it's simply the result of our living in a fallen world. When we jump to the conclusion that God is judging some person or some group of people or some nation, it leads us to self-righteousness rather than to self-examination. Every disaster scene should instead encourage self-examination. You should ask yourself, where am I at in my relationship with God? What Jesus is doing here is what comes naturally to Christians. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, there's almost an innate sense if anyone dies or if something terrible happens you begin to be concerned about the survivors and whether or not they know Jesus Christ as their Savior. You, in a, in a proper way, in a sympathetic way, use that event 
as a springboard to talk about eternal life. And so if you're at a funeral or, or you know, you're hoping that whoever is officiating is going to use the death of that family member or that friend to talk about the reality of eternal life to confront others with their own death. It is, in one sense, a, a human disaster. It's a human tragedy. Someone has died. But it's really now about the people who survived. If you died, would you be ready to meet Jesus Christ? And sometimes Christians have kind of a bad reputation for this, and, and we can go a little bit too far, and we can be rude and crude and all that, and so we want to be careful. But nevertheless, uh, when disaster strikes... You know, people have a tendency to blame God. It wasn't too long ago people didn't blame God. They blamed people. They knew that God was good and that people were bad. And when disaster struck, they, they knew people were to blame. Now we blame God. And the truth is, we live in a fallen world and terrible things are going to happen. Now, we haven't, I haven't watched the news yet this morning. But I'm sure that some terrible things have happened someplace in the world. If not, they will tomorrow. If not, they will next week or next month or next year. And they are all crying out to us in a sense, hey, if I had been there, if, if you, or if you're the one that's the Christian talking to your unbelieving friend or family, hey, if you had been there, would you be ready to see Jesus Christ? Because all of us are headed in that direction. Now, news of a disaster was brought to Jesus, and he says in verse 1, or it says in verse 1, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea for about 10 years. We know nothing historically about this incident except the words that Luke gives us here. A group of Galilean Jews were offering their sacrifices to God when Pilate ordered them killed. This is how their blood mingled with the blood of the sacrifices. And so we don't know why he ordered them killed. We don't have any of the background. All we know is that they were worshipers uh, and they were offering their sacrifice. It's been suggested this must have been during a Passover because that's when uh, lay people could bring their own offering of a lamb and that these individuals maybe in plain clothes or you know, incognito, or maybe they marched in, but at some, for some reason they killed this particular group of Galileans. And, and of course, it was, a, uh, it was a terrible tragedy. Now, Jesus' comments upon this revealed the prevailing attitude among the Jews concerning disaster. In verse 2, Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? That's exactly what they supposed. Whenever disaster struck, it was supposed that the people who were affected were guilty of extraordinary sins. It's almost human nature to think that if something terrible happens out of the ordinary, that the people deserved it. Now, disaster may be deserved. It may be a judgment from God, but it might not be. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 9, there's the wonderful story of the man born blind whom Jesus healed. The disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered and said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And so there you have it in a nutshell, the prevailing attitude of men, terrible tragedy or disaster, who sinned? 
this guy or his parents. And Jesus is saying, no, there's a greater vantage point here. We live in a world that is subject to sin, and therefore, what is our relationship to it? How can God be glorified in it? And so his blindness was not the result of his or his parents' sin. It was simply the result of sin, the result of living in a fallen world. It's a whole new way of looking at disasters for the Jews and for many of us as well. It puts you in the disaster, at the disaster scene, so that you can examine yourself. And so verse 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's a national application of these words for the nation of Israel. Unless the Jews repented as a nation, they would perish. Jesus was their promised Messiah, offering them salvation and the kingdom of heaven on earth. We know from history that they would reject Jesus. Then, as a result of that, Jerusalem would be destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. And then the Jews would be scattered throughout the world. And so that's the prophetic application. There's also a personal application of these words. All of us are born with a death sentence and we will perish if we don't do something about it. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. We're dead spiritually, dead to God. We're also dying physically. And unless we repent, we will die eternally, meaning we would live forever but separated from God in hell. The disasters we see or experience in the world serve to emphasize that kind of final judgment that everyone faces, that understanding that we're condemned but for the grace of God. Now, before we look at repentance, Jesus mentioned another disaster. He says in verses 4 and 5, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This was a construction accident. Several days ago, there was an explosion in Texas at an oil refinery. At least 15 people were killed, last I heard. It's the kind of thing Jesus was referring to, a tragic accident. Accidents can make us wonder about the people involved. Diseases, too. We have a sad tendency to suspect that this extraordinary sin is responsible for accident and illness. And it's just not true. It is part of living in a world that needs saving that accidents and illnesses occur to believers as well as unbelievers, to believers walking with the Lord as well as believers who are maybe backslidden. Years ago, Warren Wiersbe wrote a book. It was called Why bad things happen to God's people. And it's since been renamed, but I've always liked that title because it it captures it in a nutshell. Why bad things happen? They do. Bad things happen to God's people. And it's not always a Jobian situation where people come and, and assume that you are in some heinous sin, some terrible sin that you've brought it upon yourself. We need to have a bigger vantage point than that. And so what we ought to do is engage in a little bit of role playing. Put yourself at the scene. What if it were you? Would you be ready to die? Or what would you say to someone? And hopefully it would be, hey, would you have been ready to die? Unless you repent, Jesus said, you will all likewise perish. 
It may not be in a national or a natural disaster, but you will one day perish. You will one day die. Repent is a great Bible word. Uh, I, there's a lot of different definitions, uh, practical and theological, but it's just, I, I, I mean, I want to I be careful saying this, but it's just one of those words that I think most people just understand. I mean, you can tell a person to repent who isn't even religious, and, and there's just something about it that resonates in the heart uh, in terms of turning their back on their sin and walking towards God. And, and that's the kind of practical illustration I, I want to use today. It's as if I've got my back to God and I'm going away from God. No matter how righteous, no matter how good, no matter how much I keep rules and regulations, whether they're mine or they're religious ones, no matter how active I might be in a church, my back is to God and every step I take is farther away from Him. Somewhere along the line, I recognize that this trusting in my own goodness is not adequate, that it cannot save me, that I can never be saved by my own works. Usually what happens is I come to an understanding that I have broken God's law and, and there is nothing I can do to save myself because I break it in my heart. I might go through my whole life and think, well, I've never murdered anybody, so I'm, you know, I haven't committed that mortal sin, and so I'm, I'm pretty good. And then I realize through the preaching of the gospel or the ministry of the Holy Spirit taking the word of God that it's not that I haven't murdered anybody, it's that I hate people. I've actually killed them in my heart because of my hatred and my anger towards them. And that's something that lives inside of me that even if I wanted to do something about it, it's too late. It already was planted there. And I come to that understanding that I, I don't deserve heaven. I deserve hell. And so I change my mind. I say I'm no longer going to pursue this way which leads to hell. I want to face God. I want to follow God. So I change my mind. That's repentance. And having changed my mind, I turn around. That's conversion. And now that I'm facing God, following Him, every step I take moves me closer to Him. And by the way, this is some of the symbolism behind a church or a Christian event having an altar call. It's a physical illustration of the decision a person is making. It's as if they're turning their back on their sin and coming towards God, wanting to face the Lord and change the direction of their life. And so you've repented and converted. Are you done? Well, no, because as we said, you're now walking with God. It makes sense that you would see radical changes in the life of a person who is now walking with God. If you'd been walking away from God, now you're walking towards and with God, radical things are going to happen. To help you understand exactly what these radical changes are like, the Bible uses another metaphor and compares you to a fruit tree. Fruit trees bear fruit according to their kind. I don't need to bore you with that. If I plant an orange tree, I'm going to expect what? Oranges, not lemons or grapefruits. Oranges because they produce after their kind. And so if I'm a Christian walking with God, I'm going to produce fruit after my kind. And so if I've repented, I'll bear the fruits of repentance as I walk with God. John the Baptist preached repentance, and then he told the people to bear fruits worthy of repentance. The things John described were changes in behavior 
that were really the result of a change in heart. It doesn't do us any good really to just change our behavior. A lot of people are already living pretty moral lives. In fact, there are some people living more morally than some Christians. And so it's not a matter of the outward behavior alone. It's a matter of the heart changing and this affecting our outward behavior. The Apostle Paul would later describe more fully the change of heart. He too used the analogy of fruit in that famous passage in Galatians where he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And so you repent, you convert, and then walking by faith in Jesus Christ, you produce fruit. Jesus works in you by His Holy Spirit And then he works upon you by the word of God to produce this fruit of the spirit, which are the fruits worthy of repentance. And so it's no surprise that Jesus immediately talks about the fruit of a particular tree. And he says in verses six through nine, behind every disaster scene, he is cultivating you to repent. A disaster was looming on the Jewish horizon. We have the benefit of history and have mentioned it already. General Titus would come and burn Jerusalem, killing over a million Jews and taking more than 100,000 captive. You know, sometimes these numbers, can you imagine that? A million people killed in this siege of Jerusalem, 100,000 taken captive. That's a disaster. But behind the disaster, before it would occur, Jesus was busy cultivating the Jews to bring forth repentance. He explained it in the parable of the fruitless fig. Verse 6, he also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well... But if not, after that, you can cut it down. Now, a Jew understands that this farmer had been waiting a total of seven years. According to the Old Testament, farmers could not eat fruit from their own trees for the first three years after planting. Then the fruit of the fourth year, all of that belonged to God. So if this farmer had been waiting three years for fruit he could eat, He'd been waiting a total of seven years. Why seven years? Well, again, if you were a Jew, you'd know that every seventh year was a Sabbath year. Debts were canceled and slaves were set free. And so in the symbolism of the parable, Jesus is saying that he was on the scene ready to pay the debt of Israel, ready to set them free from their slavery to sin. But they were rejecting him. Israel as a nation is often compared to the fig tree. In this parable, the vineyard is the world and God is the owner. Israel is the fig tree planted in the world to bear the fruit of salvation, to be a nation that showed other nations how to come to God. Jesus is the gardener who has been working for three years, roughly the length of his earthly ministry thus far, to bring forth this fruit of repentance. The parable was left open-ended, but we know from history that Israel did not bear fruit and they were indeed cut down 
and then scattered all over the planet. By the way, it's interesting. After Jesus rose from the dead, Mary Magdalene saw him outside his tomb, but she thought he was the gardener. I've always wondered about that. I guess it makes sense that if somebody's wandering around in this area, that that maybe it's the gardener doing his morning rounds. But it is interesting that she mistook him for the gardener because spiritually speaking, Jesus was the gardener of Israel in a symbolic sense, the one who was sent to cultivate Israel and to bring forth the fruit of repentance. Now again, I want to get into the personal application for us. Jesus has told us twice, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And we talked briefly about bearing the fruits worthy of repentance. We concluded that if you are a Christian, Jesus works in you and upon you to produce this fruit. For all that, we sometimes find ourselves unfruitful or our fruit is immature or it is shriveled up. The parable of the fruitless fig can therefore be a tremendous encouragement to you because here's what it does. It presents Jesus as your personal gardener working in your life to produce the fruit of the Spirit, fruits that are worthy of repentance. I want to suggest to you that some of the episodes in your life, either past or present, certainly in the future, are exactly the things that God is allowing and bringing and wanting so that he can be working you to bear fruit. A lot of the things that we might pray against, seek release from, beg the Lord to take away from us, are the very things that will produce fruit in our life. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, those kinds of things. For example, very very easy illustration, how do you think you're going to bear the fruit of long-suffering if you're not in an impatient situation? How will you know if you're, if you're a long-suffering person unless you're asked to suffer long through a, a circumstance or an illness or whatever it might be? Now, I'm not saying we should pray for these things. They're going to come. You don't need to pray for them. They're already on the agenda. But when they come, why is our first reaction to get away from them, to hide from them? It's in a sense we're saying, I, would, I want to go through my whole life as a fruitless fig. I don't want to figure it out. Get it? I wanted to work that in. You don't ever want to figure things out. You just, you're happy. I would be happy being a big, leafy, fruitless fig. And then God brings a storm or he brings something in my life. And really it's his work as a gardener to, you know, to overcome that. And, and I want to be able to cooperate with that. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. And so looking back over the parable, the first thing that encourages you about Jesus as your gardener is that he is extremely patient. The fig tree had borne no fruit. Seven years, seven years seemed long enough to wait, but he desired yet another season to work the tree. I was talking to another pastor this week. He mentioned a problem he was having with someone in his church. And it seemed like something that a young, immature believer might do. And so I asked him how long the person had been saved. He said they had been a one-year-old Christian for the past ten years. 
Now, I like that. I can say that to you because none of you fall into that category. We have no one like that here. I prayed for him. I said, man, you must have it terrible. You should come to Hanford where all the believers are wonderful. I love them. I'm serious. See, I just can't be serious. I'm just going to quit. Being serious, that is. Anyway, and, 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 but you understand what he means. There's some people, they just seem like they, they stay in a very immature state. Or, or even mature Christians. Somebody, you might say, oh, that person, man, that's a mature believer. But there might be a time in, in their day or, or in their life when, yes, they're bearing s- some of the fruit of the Spirit. And you might say, man, look at his long-suffering or, or look at his gentleness. But then all of a sudden, some other area of fruit would just shrivel up in your life because you begin to yield to the flesh in that area. And so, and so all of us can, can relate to this. Just because you're a mature Christian doesn't mean you have the most lush, ripe fruit that the Lord wants to have in your life. And we all kind of go up and down in this. And so our passage doesn't discuss the reasons for unfruitfulness or immaturity. It doesn't really have to. All of us can examine ourselves for the fruit of the Spirit. If it's not there or if it's not maturing, then we have a problem. And it's possible that you've not repented, that you're not converted. It's possible that you're not even saved. If that's the case, then the Lord is long-suffering with you. He's not willing that you should perish, but that you should come to eternal life. More and more I'm realizing that we have to, as much as is humanly possible, uh, establish with people whether or not they're actually saved. And, And only the Lord knows the heart. There are unsaved people, as I mentioned earlier, who are extremely moral, doing tons of good works. And then there are carnal Christians, fleshly Christians. They're saved, but you'd never know it. And, and the church has struggled for centuries to try and come up with ways of identifying exactly who's who. And it always falls apart. And it always breaks down ultimately because only God knows the heart. It's not up to me to tell a person definitely that they're not a Christian or uh, definitely that they are. I can only... Uh, encourage them in ways that the Lord gives me. And, and I'm realizing that a lot of times we're assuming that other people are Christians and we'd, we've never really asked them about their relationship with Jesus Christ. When did you meet Jesus Christ? Jesus is a person, he's alive, and he needs to be met for the first time in your life. When did you meet Jesus? Describe that to me. And sometimes you get answers like, well, I've gone to church all my life. Ooh. It's like a red flag going up. And so then you want to ask some follow-up questions. Uh, you know, because could be. Maybe, they're, maybe they misunderstood the question. Or maybe they think they're a Christian because they went to church all of their lives. Or they tell you that their parents were Christians. Or their father was a minister or their mother was uh, you know a, a Christian worker or something like this. And, and I, I don't think it's rude at all to talk to people. I mean, if you're saved, you want to tell people about your conversion. You want to give people your testimony. You're excited to have somebody say, hey, tell me about when you came to know the Lord. Oh, man, I can't wait. I was blind, but now I see. I was headed for destruction. God grabbed my life and turned me around. It was such a radical change. It was amazing. And, and, and so I think sometimes when we meet people, we need to... Ask them about that. 
and, and try and establish whether we're on that common ground. And so there's a lot of people that just aren't saved, whether they're in church or not. Then it's possible that you are a Christian, but one who is backslidden. Jesus is just as patient in your life. Writing to his churches in Asia, Jesus several times called upon believers to repent. They were in a good church with good teaching, doing good works, really good works. And he said, but you still need to repent because you're not on fire for me. You're not in love with me. You've grown cold in your love, and so you need to repent. And so Christians need to repent. The Christian life begins with repentance and conversion and continues as we walk by faith, but we have an attitude of repentance, of having a tender heart towards the Lord, bringing forth the fruits that are worthy of repentance. And so not only is Jesus patient with us to to help us come to these conclusions, he's persistent. Look again at verse 8. He answered and said to him, let, uh, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. How many of you have the King James version of the Bible? Not the New King James, but the Old King James. Anybody? It, I like the way it reads in this verse 8 because it's more colorful and therefore more memorable. And he answered and said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also till I dig it and dung it. I don't know why, but that's just going to stick in my mind a little bit better than fertilizer. And so the tree needed to be digged, and it needed to be dunged. I dare you, the next time you pray out loud in a group of people, ask the Lord to dig you and to dung you. It's very scriptural. People will look funny at you, but it's true. That's what Say, Lord, I need to be digged, and I need to be dunged. These two activities probably summarize any and all possible methods and techniques used to encourage growth. You know, sometimes we, we over-limit ourselves. When the gardener says, I'm going to dig and dung the tree, well, he's going to do whatever it takes. He's going to go out there and really work with that tree. Maybe, you know, like in Southern California and around here where they grow oranges, you know, if it, they need smudge pots sometimes or, you know, insecticides or whatever it would be that would encourage that tree so that it would bear fruit. And so these just stand for those things. And, and if that's what it's like in our life. That's why sometimes we need to broaden our perspective. God wants to bring fruit forth from your life. And just about everything that's going on in your life is his efforts and attempts to put you in situations and circumstances by which that fruit can be produced. And as I said earlier, sometimes we don't recognize that and so we pray against it, we work against it, we run from it when it's the very thing that is going to bring us to maturity. Now these two activities also are a good starting point, you do need to be digged. Ground becomes hard when it receives little or no moisture. Moisture or water can refer to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so we would say here that the Lord wants to have you more aware of and more dependent upon the Holy Spirit and His leading in order to bring forth fruit. It's all too true that Christians begin in the Spirit, but then try to take over their life again and think they can go forward with God on their own power and in their own program. Many devotional writers have used the anonymous quote that says, 
If the Holy Spirit were removed from the church, 95% of its activities would continue. Now, that's obviously an impossible poll to take. Barna didn't do it. Gallup didn't do it. It's an exaggeration so that you'll think, oh, is it possible for a church to be moving forward to have programs here and programs there and have all kinds of activity and it not have anything to do with the leading of God, with His Holy Spirit? And the answer to that is yes, unfortunately yes. And that's true of our own lives as well. Even somewhat good things that we might be engaged in and doing, if we're doing them in our own energy for our own motives, they're not going to avail us of anything. And this is why I've said this for years. This is why a lot of Christians, ministers, missionaries, and just regular Christians out in the world doing their missionary work, this is why they burn out. It is really impossible to burn out as a Christian because you have an endless supply of the fuel of the Holy Spirit. And when you say, I am burned out, what you mean is that God is not sufficient for the tasks that I am trying to accomplish. And that can't be true, right? That can't be true. So what you're really saying is, I've been doing this in my own energy. I'm completely exhausted. I'm exhausted physically and spiritually and emotionally. Oh, I've been doing this myself. Jesus, man, that guy, all night in prayer so that he could be ready to minister the next day, all day, to the multitudes. I'm not saying we don't physically need sleep or anything like that. I'm just pointing out how easy it is, how extremely easy it is for us to begin in the Spirit and then made perfect in the flesh. And, and, and we all begin in the Spirit as Christians. God takes our burdens away. He removes our sin. We're radically changed. And if we're not careful, we turn to some method or some man or some program to replace what was essentially the Holy Spirit at the beginning. And we just want to be careful. Whole churches do this. Uh, and, and sure, do they grow? Sure. Uh, I'm not saying church growth is good or bad. Uh, it's exciting when more people come to church. But I was a salesman. And I know that you can sell people things that they don't even want to buy. And they feel bad about buying it, but they buy it anyway. And they don't like you when they're done buying it, but they buy it anyway. And then they buy it from you again. And you don't care if they like you or not because you're getting results. And it's possible to bring these kinds of techniques into our lives as Christians, into the life of the church... And you feel burdened and bummed and, oh, you know, I just, but, yeah, that's not from the Lord. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so if, they're, if you're bearing, a, if you're under a weight, if you're under a burden, it's, it's just not from the Lord. You need to figure that out. And then you need to be dunged. You need proper fertilizer. That would include a steady diet of God's Word. God's Word is compared in the Bible to the most nutritious, life-giving milk. It's compared to the very highest quality meat beyond Harris Ranch and to the sweetest honey. And besides the good nutrition of the Word, you need to quit eating junk food. I love it. We still tell our kids, you know, when they're little, you'll spoil your appetite. You're going to ruin your appetite. How about you just make a good dinner? 
there was never a good dinner that I didn't want to eat. How come we, you know, okay, I ate candy. Now I want to eat this because it's good. Of course, you're trying to get them to eat peas and carrots and they're playing with them and chewing them, keeping them in their mouth. Their mouth keeps getting bigger on one side. It's funny. Kids are so funny. I mean, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning, but aren't they funny how they move stuff around on their plate? I did this in Japan <laughs> just a few years ago when everything was sushi. You know, I know some of you like sushi, and God bless you. God bless you. You should travel with me to Japan. You have double your portion. <laughs> and, and, you know, you're not supposed to offend people, but you're not supposed to vomit on them either. And so, you know, and so they'd give me these plates full of, I don't know what, but just this, and some of you love that, but it's just slimy. That's all I can say about it. It's just slimy. It gives me that feeling right now on the top of my throat. I can't imagine that stuff sliding down my esophagus unchewed. But if I chew it, I mean, I mean, it's just gross. And I remember this Japanese pastor, you know, I'm doing my best to crush and to hide under rice and to, you know, when they're not looking, drop it on the ground. And I remember this Japanese pastor next to me saying, You're, you know, you need to eat your sushi. I said, no, you need to mind your own business. <laughs> and then my pastor, Gene, you need to eat that because we're being rude. And I said, no, I don't. I, of course I'm being rude, but I am not eating that stuff. <laughs> and, and I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm just not that, that's, I'm not that kind of a missionary. <laughs> I wore the tie. I did everything else, but I can't, I mean, you know, that's like a, you know, I, the guys that go and eat the grubs, man, that's not me. So anyway. And so all the disciplines of the Christian life, anything that encourages growth could be considered fertilizer for you. Prayer, fellowship with other believers, witnessing. This is a great spring message. Every new planting, every time you till or fertilize, every time you water, you can be thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit and the disciplines of your Christian life leading you to growth in your walk, yielding this precious fruit of the Spirit, the Lord coming, looking for that fruit and finding it. It doesn't sound as poetic as when David wrote the Psalms, but when you look out your window tomorrow morning and your sprinklers come on, it should remind you of the watering of God in your life through His Word and by His Spirit. And, and everywhere you look, you should see these things going on. Jesus encouraging you. If there's something not good happening in your life, Lord, how are you using this to bring forth fruit in my life? This situation calls for what? Calls for joy, calls for love, calls for goodness, calls for self-control, calls for long-suffering. Lord, that's the fruit that you want to bring in my life. You've given me this terrible boss. You've given me these unruly employees, this teacher that is just grinding me, this person or that situation, this illness. You've given that to me so that I can bear the fruit of your spirit because I, there's no way that I could know that I have that fruit if I wasn't in this situation. And so, Lord, whatever it takes... You want to dig me, you want to fertilize me, however you're going to do this, I want that fruit. Not even for myself. Do you understand what's even really precious? That fruit is not for you to enjoy. It's for God to enjoy. God enjoys bringing forth fruit from your life. See, sometimes we go around thinking, yeah, fruit, man, there's like fruit all over me. 
and I got love, I got joy. It's not for you. Your tree in the backyard doesn't get all excited. I got an orange tree. I don't even pay attention. It's a little dwarf orange, and man, it gets some oranges. They fall on the ground and die. I mean, it's probably a really sad and depressed tree. It would be happy if I went back there and did something and took the fruit. I would say, oh, thank you. One year I did that. Pretty good oranges, but I just don't have time. So anyway, God wants to come to your life. God enjoys the fruit in your life. It's your joy to allow him to enjoy it. And so disasters are all around us. Whether or not they are the direct judgment of God, we usually cannot and should not speculate. In the meantime, Jesus is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And if you've done that, he's wanting to work in your life to see you bear fruit. Because he just loves to do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time spent here this morning, valuably spent, I know, because you promised to be here and your word was read. Uh, Lord, we can't do any better than that. As we leave here, I pray that we would understand that we are your planting. Whether, maybe we feel like we've been transplanted. Maybe we feel like our soil is poor. Whatever it is, we are your planting. You are working in and around us to bring forth fruit. And that fruit is for your enjoyment. And it is our joy to see you have that pleasure. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. All right, it's now 1.30. No? No, 12.30. 12.40. Wow, no wonder we can't get it right. It's now 12.40, unless you have a meeting here at the church this afternoon, which some of you do, and then it's still 11.40. But anyway, the rest of you go out into the world and enjoy daylights savings time or whatever it is and we'll see you next week. God bless you. I wait.